Hello and welcome to the Analytic Show, the podcast of business through the lines of data science. But together, we'll dive into learning and sharing where various industries are heading and how data and analytics is at the heart of shaping business growth and productivity. Let's spark different ways of thinking about data and analytics that is relevant to you and prepare your business for future disruption. I'm your host, Jason Tan, and I'm delighted you could make it on this journey with us. Hey guys, to continue to get support, tips, techniques, and tools, and learn from the expert, hit that subscribe button wherever you are so we can keep in touch and continue our lifelong learning together. So, are you using your company data to its full potential? Take our embedded analytic assessment Find out your score. A leading organization like Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google have moved beyond dashboard and embedded data science directly into their daily business operation. With our three-minute test, you will discover your potential in optimizing customer experience and revenue through embedded analytics. You will gain greater clarity, insight, and advice embed analytics. Plus, you will receive customized results instantly. Find the link to this assessment in the description of this episode. Good morning, Michael. Welcome to the Analytics Show podcast. So excited to have you here. Uh, how Thank are you, you Jason? I'm fantastic, Jason. Thank you for having me today. Uh, it's, a, it's a lovely day outside. It's great to be spending some time with you today. So thank you for having me. Thank you very much. Now, uh, while I was doing my research, I learned that you also enjoy voice acting alongside with your other work. How did, how did, did, how did that get started? How did that whole thing start? Well, um, I live in Bundaberg in regional Queensland, which is at the gateway to the Great Barrier Reef. Um, and we <laughs> moved from the city with my family about 10 years ago. And um, there was a flood here on the Burnett River, a specific um, uh, emergency uh, event that happened. And as part of that, my wife and I wanted to give back to the local community. And a, a group of business and um, stakeholder representatives was formed called Bundaberg Region Rising. And as part of that, there were some radio ads and some TV ads and some other activities. And they said, we need someone to be the voiceover for that. Would you do that, Michael? And I said, Sure, you know, I, when I was a kid, I used to work at KFC on the drive-through and you know, so, so I'd had a little bit of experience speaking to people um, and as part of my job as well, I've done some public speaking. So yes, I did some radio clips that then turned into my wife and I doing some TV commercials um, around Bundaberg and Bagara uh, because we've got the largest turtle rookery in Australia. Mm. Uh, we've got great beaches, the Great Barrier Reef, and we did some pieces around professionals moving into the region because uh, in Bagara and Bundaberg, we're the same, um, we're on the same uh, line of latitude as Hawaii. So it's a wonderful climate and we wanted to encourage people to come and live in the region. So we did some TV commercials as well. And then that turned into somebody from the local um, drama uh, group called the Playhouse Theatre uh, approaching me and asking me to do um, not an audition, but a reading with some local actors. And as a result of doing that, I didn't realise it was actually a stitch-up 
and I got cast in the play. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I ended up starring in this musical called Clue, which is based on the board game Cluedo that your listeners might have heard of, um, mm. where you have someone murdered um, in a particular room with a with a with a weapon. So you know it's Colonel Mustard in the billiard room with the pipe. So um, the musical was based on that, and, and it was my first acting gig. But since then, I've ended up being the lead, uh, the male lead in Avita. Um, and I was the male lead in uh, Les Mis uh, a couple of years ago. So I was Jean Valjean. And most recently, I was one of the three fathers in the musical Mamma Mia, um, which starred at the historical um, Moncrief Theatre here in Bundaberg. So um, late in life, uh, I've ended up being come, becoming a little bit of an amateur actor as well. So that's what I always say, though, you know, enjoy your life outside of work as well because it makes you much more fit to work, in my view, if you have a really rounded experience with your family, uh, with your friends, uh, with community organisations, as well as your workplace. I so agree. And sometimes you will also pick up a lot of uh, different skills from those experiences that uh, you can work, uh, bring into the workplace. I'm curious to know, of all of those experiences that you just shared with me, any particular one that is still stuck with you until now that you think is the most uh, memorable? I think probably being the lead of a musical that's so iconic like Les Miserables um, is, is really just so wonderful. And I still have people talk to me in the street all the time about that performance because I'm not a trained singer. And for anyone who knows that particular musical based on the French Revolution, um, and, it, you know, it is one of the longest running musicals on Broadway's history. Um, it's a very challenging role with some very iconic music and iconic songs like, yeah. like Bring Him Home. And uh, again, being untrained um, and being in a performance like that with such rage, rave, uh, rave reviews was just wonderful and something that I'll um, cherish forever. Fascinating. And was that whole thing in English or presume it, it, it is <laughs> rather than yeah, French. So it, yeah, yeah, it's definitely in English, but has lots of French overtones and um and French references and and a cast of around 40 um yeah. in, in the cast, some people playing multiple roles. Um but being the lead um actor in a musical like that, uh, you know, it's almost three hours long that musical. It's one of the longest musicals around. And I had to be on stage for almost over half uh, of that particular yeah. musical. So there's a lot of technique involved. You've got to learn a lot of lines, know a lot of singing. Um, and I formed friendships from that that will last forever. Um, and I think that's the magic of community organisations. Um, mm. You form great friendships and you learn skills that are so good for the workplace that you mm. might not imagine around collaboration, around being able to engage um, mm. leadership, troubleshooting, um, particularly when you're on stage, things always will go wrong. You hope they yeah. don't. And you need to be able to improvise and think on yeah. your feet. So yeah. all of those skills are exactly what you need for the workplace as well. Fascinating. Now, moving in to the uh, main cause of this podcast, tell us a bit about your role as the Executive General Manager of Customer at Energy Queensland and uh, also uh, a little bit about the company itself. 
Absolutely. So Energy Queensland uh, is the largest company in Queensland. Uh, it's an energy company and it owns a number of companies including Ergon Energy Network and Energex and they're the companies that look after electricity distribution. So the poles and wires like in this um, picture I've got in the background here. So yeah. um, distributing the electricity and the electrons to your home. So they're two very big businesses um, and they've got 2.3 million customers in Queensland. So uh, thinking about your listeners, Queensland um, is 1.7 square million square kilometres. So it's seven times the size um, of the United Kingdom, just as a reference point. Um, so very, very large. We've got 1.7 million power poles, um, you know, 11,000 kilometres of fibre optic cable to look after that. We've got 7,500 employees um, and 500 apprentices, so trainee apprentices, which is very exciting. And it's a $26 billion company. If we were listed on the Australian Stock Exchange, we'd be in the top 20 um, of companies in Australia. So very big. Um, we've also got two other companies as part of our portfolio for Energy Queensland, and that's Ergon Energy Retail. So it's a retail business that provides the electricity bill to 700,000 customers in um, regional Queensland. And then we have another company called Eureka. It's our new energy services business, which builds solar farms, wind farms. It's built the largest electric vehicle superhighway in the world, all the way from the Gold Coast near the Coolangatta Airport, all the way up to Cairns um, at the other end of the Great Barrier Reef and all of the spots in between. So it's very much getting into the net zero part um, of energy. So for my role, I'm the Executive General Manager for Customer, as you say. So I look after all of our customer strategy for our business. And our strategy is very, very simple. It's know your customers, deliver value, and make it easy. So that's what we try and do each and every day for our business and for our customers. Um, I also look after all of our media and marketing. So I'm the Chief Marketing Officer for uh, our business. I look after all of our internal and external communication, ensuring that we have great reputation um, mm. for our stakeholders and for our customers. Um, I also uh, look after our community strategy as well in terms of outreach to our community. And when we're building major projects, ensuring we're working very closely with our community. Because our vision, purpose and values is all about energising Queensland communities. So we want to make sure that we do that in partnership right across the state. Then on the network side of our business, so for our two network businesses being Ergon and Energex, I also manage all of the billing for our retailers. And we bill nearly $4 billion worth of product a year for electricity retailers. We look after all the metering connections. So the electricity boxes that you might have at your home or your business, all the metering part of that my team looks after. We look after those 2.3 million connections right across Queensland for our customers. Um, and we also help our customers deliver major projects across the state. So that might be all of the mum and dad connections, business connections, farm connections, but the very large solar farms, the very large mines, the very large businesses, businesses that are iconic for Queensland, like Bundaberg Ginger Beer, like Bundaberg Rum, right near where I live here in Bundaberg. Um, we do all of the connections for those um, industries as well. 
Uh, so it's a very big portfolio. Um, you know, we have connected over 700,000 solar household connections across Queensland for our customers. Um, we do 35,000 gigawatt hours of energy a year through our distribution businesses. Um, and on the other side of the scale, we've got 33 microgrids in isolated and remote communities um, across Queensland, particularly in, in those indigenous communities and islands right up in the Cape um, of Queensland, which is so very close to Papua New Guinea and Indonesia and our island, um, uh, our island partners and regional partners just off regional Queensland. So it's a very, very large business. It's very important in terms of helping um, Queenslanders uh, drive the economy, but also very important in terms of strategically where we need to be in the future. So we are helping the Queensland government deliver their targets around renewable energy, and of course, we'll pay a very, play a very important role in achieving net zero um, for Australia. Uh, we're a government-owned organisation, so we have two ministers that are shareholders uh, in the Parliament of Queensland um, that are our owners and a board of directors that they appoint. Um, and I'm one of the executives on our executive board um, that support the business. That is a one huge company, I, I, I have to say. It's so much bigger than I found from my research. If you will have to say that is one thing that always bring you back to the focus in running such a big portfolio, what would that be one thing that you continue to go back? Yeah, so I think really it comes back to our vision, purpose and values. It's about energising Queensland communities, making sure that we are supporting communities to deliver economic growth for the state and for them and enabling customers to achieve the lifestyle that they want in the safest possible way. Now, community is uh, really a big thing. Tell us a bit more about how the customer and research data play in this customer experience and also uh, serving the community. Well, customers are very much central to everything we do. And we don't do that just by words. We make sure that we are assessing how our customers view us. And importantly, my performance agreement includes metrics uh, in relation to customers. So um, our board, in terms of their performance agreement that they have with our shareholding ministers, has a number of key priorities. And, you know, they usually have the usual things around um, you know, the returns that you're providing to the shareholders um, through the profits that you're making. But we also have to meet metrics in terms of our customer satisfaction. So we have a customer satisfaction score or a CSAT score that is made up of our responses from our customers through um, our surveys that we do. So we do thousands of surveys um, a year with our customers getting direct feedback from them uh, and that makes up that particular metric for customer satisfaction uh, and that's really what our customers think of us it's, it's close to a um, um, you know a, a net promoter score as well but we have a net trust score um, that we have so we have a score around the satisfaction that you've had for service but then also a score about do you believe that this company is doing doing good um, in terms of trust uh, so we make sure that we survey our customers and get those results. But we also, and we use the Qualtrics platform for that, um, which some of your, um, your listeners might be well aware of. 
um, uh, a, a company that does those surveys for us, but we have some bespoke in-house work that we do on that as well. Then we have a listening program that is the voice of the customer that provides even deeper insights because for me, a number's great um, yeah. to have. A number's always great because you need that for performance. And we also do an in-survey benchmark um, against our competitors uh, and other like organisations, so other utilities um, or others that are seen as good or best in class. So we also do in-survey benchmarks um, against, you know, Bunnings, um, supermarkets, uh, other utilities like AGL, um, Australia Post, Telstra, um, to make sure that we're doing appropriate comparisons to see where we are in relation to them. Um, but what I love is our voice of the customer survey, because that's where we get verbatim comments from our customers. And in those comments are where you get that really rich content in relation to where the pain points are. Because if there's one thing I'm not, uh, it's a fool and being convinced by our numerical results that we're doing a great job. I want to look and read the comments from our customers directly to get a deep understanding of where the pain points are for them. And then the job of my team is to work with our business to remove them. So for example, that might be um, a farmer has a connection or a, or a piece of um, infrastructure that's being built for them. Uh, but our workforce is uh, traversing their property and potentially bringing weeds onto their property or is coming around at a time they don't like. Our people might not even do that, except mm. for the certain that even know, do it or they might not know that uh, through the surveys that we do, we can get that rich information. And we're also then to provide content to our customers to say, you know, we have a weed management program, we do have hose down, we don't want any of your property without your approval. So that's just one example. Another one might be that with cost of living for our retailer, we're starting to see some pressure and hardship with particular um, customer groups. So we might work very closely with the government about whether there might be opportunities to support them. Um, and uh, as a result of that, the government next week is actually applying through our retailer a $175 rebate to all of our customers for cost of living um, uh, reasons. And they can do that because they get the profits back from our business um, because we're government owned. And we can get some of the sentiment around that directly from our customers. Or it might be that on our website, um, people are finding it clunky in terms of being able to put in an application for a move in, move out for a moving house, um, or they want an upgrade because they're putting in an electric vehicle or solar. Through those verbatims, we're able to get very rich data then, um, and, and we're able to remove those uh, pain points for our customers. What's also very important though, is that we report back to our board each and every month on these, um, on how we're traveling and our risk uh, committee has me reporting to them uh, a number of times a year on where we've had challenging customer issues so that we do a deep dive into those issues and our board of directors is across exactly what all of the customer issues are so that they can discharge their duty as directors that they are really hearing the hard stories uh, for our customers and importantly then what we're doing about it. One other thing that I also just pick up is that in your business it consists both B2B segment and also B2C segment. What are the major differences that you have found between the two 
and how do you have to respond to the differences between the two, if there is any? Absolutely, they are, they are different, not only um, in the individual businesses that we have, um, but across those businesses as well. And um, we see that through the segmentation that we do. So um, as part of the data that we get, we uh, do segmentation across our customers, and we also then develop personas for those customers so that our frontline staff um, know quite quickly the attributes of a particular customer and are able to respond to that. So for example, a renter um, who has to rent a property is going to have very different needs to somebody who owns their property. Um, because a renter, for example, they can't just put solar panels on their house and get the benefits of renewable energy, whereas a householder will have the ability to do that. So um, in, in, um, in that B2C situation, it's important to know what the segments are and be able to respond to them. In B2B, it's really about how it is that we can provide a great platform um, for those customers to then provide services to their own customers. So particularly in our Eureka business, where we're providing products and services for renewable energy, whether it's um, you know, for big mines, for big solar operators, wind operators, or others that want to reduce their um, carbon footprint. It's about how do we understand their strategy so that we can develop the products and services for them. So um, mm. I think on the one side, the, B, um, the B2C, it's really around understanding the customer and knowing them, delivering the product, making it easy, depending on that, the attributes of those particular segments. And then the B2B is more around alignment of strategy to ensure that we can deliver um, what they want to achieve as a business. Have you found that all of these segmentation and uh, also all of these customer research data been very useful to, to build new product for the customer? A hundred percent. So particularly if we look at um, our, our contact centers or call centers, for our retailer in particular, if they can pick up quite quickly through a couple of questions, the persona and segment of a particular customer, they can change the language and they can deliver products to them quite quickly that they might not be aware of. So for example, if we take a, um, a typical um, customer who might be um, a pensioner, um, if they pick that up pretty quickly through the customers they ask, they can ask them, Do you, have you accessed our senior rebates that are available um, that they might not be aware of? And that provides a really great opportunity and a cost saving to that customer. Similarly, in Queensland, um, if you're a healthcare card owner, so um, for your listeners, somebody who is eligible um, from a social perspective to be able to have a, a discount for healthcare, uh, you also can get a rebate off your electricity bill. So from a segmentation perspective, they might know that in particular socioeconomic areas, um, and if you're a renter, more likely than a homeowner, they can just ask the question. Um, oh, do, you know, do you know that you might be eligible for this retail, uh, this particular rebate? If we know it's a business customer that wants to have a particular connection, and we can pick up pretty quickly through our um, analytics that we know that they're a small business of this particular type, we will be able to provide a tariff for them that might be more beneficial for them um, because of the type of um, industry they are. So if they're a baker, a bakery, for example, they might use particular high demand equipment at particular times 
but they might be able to move to a tariff that means if they're not using electricity at a particular time of the day, they might be able to get a discount for that. So 100%, the better your segmentation and personas, the more likely you're going to be able to deliver a good product for that customer, which also means you're probably going to get better customer satisfaction and net trust results as well. Because one of the things we have to say to our employees is they hear all of these acronyms and go, oh, what does that mean for me? Um, and I always say to them, well, one of the things I want to achieve here is that when, when you're wearing our brands out in the community, I want that to be a positive experience for you. And the better we do in this space, the better experience that's going to be for you. Um, and, and that's something that's been quite transformational for our business. Speaking of the call center, one of the, 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 the trend that is happening in, across the world and also in Australia is that organizations have started to deploy some uh, AI tools to help to crunch the data, to crunch all the information, to provide that customer 360 to help with the call center. Is that something that you guys have already started doing? It is certainly something that we do. I wouldn't say that we're um, particularly mature on our journey yet, um, but it is something that we've been looking at and trialling and, and do do in some areas um, of the business, particularly where we've been able to transition a lot of our retail customers to online accounts. So yeah. out, of, um, out of those circa 700,000 customers, before the pandemic, we had sort of, you know, around 10% or so that were on an online my account e-billing type situation. During the pandemic, one thing that I did, um, which my marketing team were concerned about at the time, is I immediately walked into a radio production um, facility to cut some 15 and 30 second ads to say, we understand it's a challenge with the pandemic and we're here for you. And because the government had provided some rebates at the time, I used that as an opportunity to say, on your next bill, you will see a government rebate. However, if you sign up to my account today, you'll be able to see the rebate online in your account immediately. And overnight, we had this amazing flight to digital platforms as others did, but we probably had a much more significant uptake. And now we have the majority of our customers on that online platform. And that makes it easy for us to do some further analytics with the data for those customers, service other products to them. So the traditional electricity bill is done on a three-month billing cycle, but we have other products where you can smooth that bill out. And through our analytics, we can predict what your bill would be over a period of time and offer you a, a monthly smooth pay product, um, which obviously is great for customers that are looking at budgeting, not not every three months because who does that i don't budget every three months uh, you know most people are doing that week to week or month to month or day to day depending on on where they are so providing those other products and services from that artificial intelligence we had for giving those predictive tools around what the bills would be and then being able to provide a new product for those customers i do always say though that you know you don't want to just have a flight to digital products always because sometimes you can, you can implement a digital program that your customers just hate. You need to make sure that you've really thought about it. And I, you know, Accenture have recently released some global insights about the new energy consumer of the future. And 
you know, where energy providers can provide digital um, products that are a win-win for customers and, and, and it's really aligned as well with the purpose of your brand, that's great. Um, they need to be reliable um, and, and you need to demonstrate that it's going to be a good outcome for those customers instead of going to digital for digital sake. I agree. And also one thing that I pick up is uh, how you were using the rebate as a way to um, bring them in to use the digital channel. I think one of the mistakes that often some organizations have done is that they create a digital channel, but they have no way to funnel people uh, to use it. So that, that was a, a, a good one. You mentioned about it shouldn't be the digital for digital shape. I so agree with that. Any particular example that you think maybe one should not doing the digital for digital sake? So I think you've got to be careful if you're going to release tools like web chat, if you're not able to service them appropriately and you haven't really done some deep uh, research into the analytics around what your customers want, um, because you can just, as you know, Jason, sometimes you only get one shot with these things. So if you haven't done a lot of great, um, you know, CX work on mm. and, and, you know, um, sort of testing out the digital experience, you can really come undone. So I'd probably say two things. One, make sure you've done the, the CX work and the digital experience work and the UX work before you launch any product. Um, but if you are going to launch a product like WebChat, for example, make sure you've got that customer segmentation so that when they log on and they're going to be served particular information that you are able to some way tailor that. And that can be as simple as knowing what the majority of your customers want um, to be served. You'll, you'll probably get away with that. Um, but if you can segment it even further, that would always be better. Um, because for us at the moment, we, we are looking at going to a more digital bot um, web chat, but at the moment, ours is actually human-centered, so um, it's actually really just our agents that are doing using another channel. But um, in the future, we will move further down that track, but we're going to do that incrementally, making sure that we actually add in some AI first for when people log on to say, oh, here's our top five trending topics, is this what you're after? Um, before we then transition to more and more digital enablement through that particular application. Hey, all, I just want to give a quick shout out about this episode, sponsored by the Embedded Analytic Program at DDA. And the Embedded Analytic Program is designed for senior manager and executive in the business team who want to integrate data science into daily business operation and use it to drive customer experience excellence and revenue and build unlimited strategy session for a full year and start embedding analytics into the business frontline. For more information about this program, please refer to the description of this episode. Now let's get on back to the interview. Absolutely, just a very quick one. Uh, the acronym uh, used for the CX and uh, UX, it stands for customer experience and user experience. Um, I should have said that, it's terrible. <laughs> No, that's okay. And coming back, you spoke a lot about the renewal uh, energy. Now, 
we know that the world is moving more and more towards the sustainability. So what is, what, what is data telling you about this future direction for energy? Yes, well, I think what data is telling us, not just on our network, but what we see happening in the broader energy environment is that there are very exciting times ahead, but it's going to be very challenging as well. And there's so many scenarios out there um, and who knows what the right one is. So let's use electric, uh, electric vehicles as an example, I guess. So um, one of the reasons our Eureka business built the electric vehicle superhighway was um, for a few reasons. One, um, uh, as marketing for our business, because we wanted to be an early leader and we're always trying to be ahead of the curve in terms of you know, strategy and insights from our customers and um, research agencies that we might use. But the second thing was when it comes to electric vehicles, we knew um, that there were three barriers to entry for customers, one being the price of the vehicles, um, one being access to the technology, a particular issue for Australia as well. Um, and the third one in Queensland, uh, more than other states, range anxiety. So customers in our research um, said, they were, you know, they, in Queensland, for example, where I live in Bundaberg, to get to the capital city is 400 kilometres. So yeah. would, would there be an ability for us to get to um, that destination uh, on one charge or would there be accessible <clears throat> energy charges along the way? Because it's a totally different mindset to a petrol vehicle, but most of us are used to having a petrol vehicle. So there's going to be a huge cultural change here because people probably aren't going to go to a service station all the time to charge their electric vehicle. It's going to be at home or their workplace or at a charging station at a destination. So for example, that's probably going to be at a shopping centre or a fast food um, establishment, somewhere where you're going to be for at least 15 minutes to do your charge instead of one minute, minute to fill up your tank. So how is it that we're going to provide for that for the future for our customers? Because with the electrification of transport, we're going to see, and this is a surprise for people. So electricity in the Australian economy is only 20% of the energy mix. But if we're going to electrify transport in the way that is envisaged to meet net zero, we're probably going to have to do that 12 times over what we have yeah. now. So when we think about the history of our company, I've got a little prop here, actually. If you want to have a little look at this, that is a little piece of electricity cable that yeah. was dug up a couple of years ago from underneath um, the middle of Brisbane, the Brisbane CBD. And for, um, uh, for your international uh, listeners, uh, Brisbane is obviously a capital city, the capital of Queensland. And in 2032, it will be hosting the Olympic Games, which is very exciting for Queensland and for Brisbane. So that particular piece of electricity cable was the third piece of cable in the world that was laid um, after New York and London. So it's called the Edison Cable for obvious reasons. Um, and it was laid down in 1882 um, to power the first electric network um, in Australia and the third in the world. And it powered up um, Queen Street uh, and George Street and was used to run the Parliament House precinct and the printing presses there. So, you know, that was in 1882 um, and it's taken us 
140 years to get to where we are today. And in the next 20 years, we're going to have to increase our electricity network in Queensland by a factor of, as, as I said, it could even be 10, it could be more than that. So that's a huge bit of work to be done. And a lot of that comes from bringing in electric vehicles, um, electrifying businesses that aren't um, electric at the moment, that use gas uh, or that use other forms of energy, um, electrification of other parts of the transport industry, like buses and trucks, et cetera, particularly for passenger transport. And then the electricity that will need to go into the establishment of the hydrogen, hydrogen industry as well. Because hydrogen will be based on renewable energy from, from wind farms and solar farms, being then converted uh, into hydrogen. Um, and so that's quite an energy intensive process and will come from electricity, but from renewable energy. So um, our customers are saying they want to see the renewable um, future as soon as possible. There is now great purchasing intentions for electric vehicle and vehicles, and we're starting to see models come to Australia. And we've seen some changes in policy from the government in recent weeks which will amplify um, and accelerate that transition. So, for example, um, last Friday, the federal government said they are considering some new vehicle emissions um, arrangements. And really, that's code for the uh, car yards and, um, and, and those that sell uh, cars in Australia will stop importing particular vehicle brands because they won't be able to meet the emission standards and the cars that will meet the emission standards will be electric vehicles. So what's that going to mean for the consumers? This is a, this is a challenge that our business is considering at the moment. Because um, as I said, it will all depend on where customers want to charge their vehicles. Yeah. So many customers will probably want to do that overnight. Um, but the worst thing for our network, our electricity network, would be as everyone turned home, up home at five o'clock, and plugged their vehicle in and started taking um, electricity from the grid because that's our real peak time. Yeah. Um, and and if we have to, if we have all of our customers getting on the grid at that peak time, we have to build more and more and more, and that costs more and more for our customers. So what we're working with customers on and our um, our regulators on is how can we come up with tariff products or energy purchasing products that can shift. The power usage to the time of the day when there's the most electricity being generated and at the moment that is now in the middle of the day it didn't used to be like that even 20 years ago um, it used to be you know uh, our curve sort of went like this but now it goes like this um, so it's called the duck curve because that's what it looks like on a graph so how do we fill in the belly of the duck um, and we'll be using products and services to do that. So we'll be wanting people to charge in the middle of the day to soak up all that wonderful solar, um, or we will be, be installing batteries to soak up that solar. So our business has just started rolling out some very large grid scale batteries, and we've got six of those out in the market at the moment. Um, they're four uh, gigawatt, eight gigawatt hour batteries, and they're going to be revolutionary in terms of soaking up the great solar of those 700,000 customers that have installed them, as well as the big um, uh, major solar farms and, and bio energy generators. Um, and then we'll be using that in the peak time to level that off across the grid. So a big engineering challenge, but we'll be using our customers to help us with that. 
which is why that connection with our customers is so important. That is so many things to unpack in this uh, topic of the electric vehicle. I think one thing that it always comes to my mind is that as we are going to shift entirely, well, not perhaps not entirely, but we are trying to shift more from fossil fuels to, to electricity. Given that the uptake of the EV, how do you think this will add to the challenges in the transition from coal to renewable energy? Yeah, so there certainly will be engineering challenges there. I think the really good thing for Queensland is that there are so many major renewable projects on the horizon um, that the, that renewable energy will be coming onto the network at the right time in the right place. Will it be perfect? No, but um, the Queensland government has got some major investments in very large transmission infrastructure, and we've got fantastic investment from the private sector and also government-owned businesses um, for new hydroelectricity um, opportunities through dams, a number of wind farms that our Eureka business is doing um, uh, project management and delivery of, um, big solar farms out there. Our energy retailer, Ergon Retail, also buys all the bagasse or the steam electricity generated by sugar mills in Queensland as well. So um, there's other renewables that are coming onto the network as well. So the, the good thing about not being able to get those models of electric vehicles some years ago is now we will probably be able to just in time have that renewables coming onto the system at the time when we need it most. Well, apart from the Aldo's engineering initiative, do you think digital or data can play a role in this transition? Well, it will absolutely have to because one of the things that's a big challenge is going to be the orchestration of all of these customer-owned devices. So, um, you know, we're moving from a time where really you did just have one-way flow of electricity from the power station to the home, but now we've got 700,000 generators on mm. the roofs of households that make up the largest power station in Queensland mm. that are not um, that are not managed by the distribution network or the generators. So what will need to happen is digital technology will help orchestrate um, those devices for customers. So in the future, what we'll see is that people might have solar panels, um, a, a battery, a small battery perhaps, um, and an electric vehicle. And through applications, through retailers, distribution businesses or other aggregators, will be able to develop virtual power plants that can be orchestrated at the right time um, through the day and night to get the optimal outcome across the grid with a financial benefit for customers as well. So digital will have such an important role to play in that. Um, and it's yet to be seen exactly who will become the big market movers in this space, but um, it's something that all parts of the energy sector are getting into at the moment so that we can aggregate that um, energy that's being um, produced by householders and businesses that it can be used for their benefit and then it can be used for other customers as well because when it comes to the renewable energy future there's a number of segments that I've been concerned about that can't participate as much as others because of barriers to entry and there's three of those that we're most concerned about and that's vulnerable customers so customers that just don't have the upfront payments and ability to 
by solar panels and batteries and electric vehicles. The second is renters, um, because I don't know about you, but if you're renting a property, it's a bit difficult to get your solar panels off the roof and pop them on your back and then walk to your next rental property. So that it's challenging for them. And then the multi-tenancy dwelling. So big high rises or big blocks of units, um, they, those individual customers don't have a lot of ability to get into um, the renewable energy industry either. So we want to make sure that, that digital will provide products and services where they might be able to buy units in um, a battery or units of solar. Um, you know, retailers will provide more and more renewable products for those customers so that there is a price point um, that is available to enter for all customers. Coming back to the, so I was going to say the virtual power plant is a really interesting concept that I have been reading. So that's something that I, um, I'm so keen to find out more in the future. But coming back to this whole uh, charging the electric vehicle, one of the other direction that is taking uh, really uh, a lot of momentum in overseas is the idea of battery swapping. So instead of like trying to charge it, um, they would just swap out the battery. I thought that was a really uh, interesting concept. Do you think that is something that we will take place in Queensland or perhaps Australia? Yes, I think as the market matures, we're going to see a lot of different options. And when I was talking about the scenarios earlier, um, there's a whole range of different scenarios. So in China, absolutely, they're quite advanced in terms of the battery swapping um, opportunities. Um, with particular brands and products. And so that's something that's still there to be seen. Are we going to have customers that will go to their local service station or workplace or supermarket and charge there? Um, are we going to have a swap and go arrangement where um, you do have battery swapping um, or are customers going to just do a triple type charging at home? And that will be... Um, so critical in terms of the planning for the future because of course uh, we want to make sure that charging stations are located on our network where there's great capacity at the moment so that we don't need to overspend on the network um, but if you suddenly had vehicles that were flooding the Australian market that were swap and go well that's a game changer in terms of where you might site a facility like that because it could essentially be it might not necessarily need to be um, close to where there was large transmission or distribution infrastructure. It could be that you have a charging facility that is located near there, but you have remote depots that are nowhere near that particular charging facility. And just like gas bottles, they get moved around. So um, yes, I think we will find that there's a whole range of different um, options out there. And that's certainly one of them. So um, those are scenarios that need to be tested to ensure that we take some no regrets decisions to get the best outcome for our spend on infrastructure for the future. Well, there is always two sides of the coin. If that is one thing that, that concerns you most about the whole direction of going to the renewable energy. Yeah, so I think we're certainly up for the challenge, but um, probably what keeps me up at night then is the rate of change. Um, and whether we've got the, the capacity and capability to deal with all of the scenarios. Um, I believe that in Australia, particularly when it comes to energy, we always meet the challenge. We've had a few bumpy situations along the way with energy markets, 
um, with disasters that impact on uh, networks, etc. But we always come out bigger and better. So um, yeah, the, the rate of change is something that I would be concerned about, but I'm sure that we're very much up for that challenge and have some very bright people working on it. Uh, bringing all of this back to data and analytics. So how are you using data and analytics to prepare the organization, uh, i.e. Energy Queensland, and also Queensland itself for a future of renewable energy? Yeah, so there's a few things that we do there. So as well as all of those other metrics I've talked about, we always survey our employees as well. So we have what's called a customer enablement index. And through that survey, we ask our customers if they have the tools and information in order to do their job well, um, which is very important in terms of understanding where the roadblocks and pain points are for our employees. Um, and through our external research with our customers, um, and trends and scenarios, we make sure that we keep our employees uh, very much informed because we see them as 7,500 billboards walking all through Queensland, talking to our customers each and every day, whether it's in the job they do or at the barbecue or family event they might have on at the weekend. So uh, number one is about keeping our um, employees informed about where we're going strategically and what the horizon looks like. Um, and then the other important bit is working with the industry broadly to make sure that everybody is across the insights that we're seeing so that we can make sure that we're making appropriate policy and investment decisions. Any advice for the energy or perhaps the analytic professional who looking to start to looking into the renewable energy for their own parts of the world? Yeah, I think it's um, not dissimilar to my own experience. So I'm actually a, um, a climate scientist by profession, an environmental oh, wow. scientist. And, um, and, so, and so I started that study in 1992, back when it really was very different. Um, mm -hmm. But today, that's like quite the sexy profession, right? Um, people <laughs> think climate science is so cool and there's jobs for all of them. Um, similarly, for data analytics, it is just really opening up in terms of um, the absolute necessity to understand the data in your business, what the insights are, so that you can, you know, one, monetize that and get value, um, but also intrinsically connected to that, make sure that you've got that close touch point with your customers and that you understand them. Again, it's really going back to our whole customer strategy and principles about knowing them, deliver them value and make it easy. And you cannot do that without data analytics. Um, and now that we're moving into this transition, um, just as important to ensure that all of the metrics that are associated with that and all of the data points that give you the insights are well known um, and that you're bringing that together to give the proper insights for your business. The other thing that I feel like there's a lot of opportunity in there is that as we are building all of these new uh, renewable infrastructure from the ground up, um, there is so much opportunity to digitize them as well. And as the digitization happens, um, that is just going to collect tons and tons of the data where uh, people can play around or, or get insight or make it even more useful. And I think really in the emission space, space as well, that's total, just so critical because, um, you know, businesses really now um, are looking at what their emissions are, what they can do about them, 
um, and, and getting that very clear picture of what the baseline is for them. And really, you're only going to get that from really great data analytics. Fascinating. Is there anything else you would like to uh, share about your work? Um, just that it's such an exciting period. We've got a great team that want to make sure that as we move towards um, net zero and the transition, uh, that we're making sure that we do that in such a way that it's in partnership with our customers and our community uh, to make sure that we uh, may have a great lifestyle here in Queensland. My final two questions before I let you go. The first one first is, what is your most important first principle? I think transparency. It's really important to be transparent in everything that you're doing um, so that you can have that trust with your customers. So um, I always uh, have a phrase that is, uh, you know, trust comes into town on a tricycle, but it leaves in a Formula One Ferrari. Um, so it's so important um, that when you're engaging with your customers, your employees and stakeholders, um, that you really gain that trust um, and it's hard to gain trust. It's very easy to lose it. Um, so being transparent, I think, is always a really important principle. What is one book that you have read and thought it would have been better for your younger self? Yeah, so one of my favourite books, and, um, and I did read it when I was younger, but um, probably it would have been great for me to read it even earlier, is Silent Spring by Rachel Carson. So it's a quite iconic book in terms of the environmental movement um, because Rachel uh, was someone who built the cat on um, the chemical industry in America uh, in the 70s. And she was derided for a long period of time. And, uh, and it came to be that what, what she said was, was true. And, and really the way that she was able to elevate um, the, the movement around the environment was based on the research she did and therefore the data she compiled and the insights that provided to lawmakers and the community. Um, and really the environmental protections that we see today all have their foundations in the work that she did. And a lot of it is explored in that book. So um, Silent Spring by um, Rachel Carson, it's one of my favorites. I love it. I think especially the resilience that um, she had to go through, I think it would be, uh very inspiring as well absolutely very much michael that was a great great podcast interview and i share a lot of uh, uh great nugget uh go nugget in there that I, I i pick up in the energy and also the renewable energy thank you so much Ken. thank you so much jason hello if you enjoyed this conversation hit that subscribe button so we can meet again if you don't i'll be stuck in an infinite loop so Pull that part by clicking the subscribe and help me out. You can further support us by leaving us a kind review from wherever you are listening. At the end of the year, I will choose a reviewer to send a special gift to, and it might just be you. I look forward to seeing you here next week for a new adventure. If I can find my way out of this endless loop. See ya. Thank <laughs> you.